Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. I'd like to welcome our newest members, Nigel, the Klepper family, and Elizabeth. Now today we have something pretty exciting. Listener Simon put me in contact with Aaron Robinson and Fiona Gale, who are currently working on archaeological sites in Denbyshire, North Wales. And they were kind enough to agree to speak with me via Skype. So today we're taking a break from our Middle Ages cultural discussion, and instead we have an interview on the Heather and Hillforts Project, a project which focuses on a number of Iron Age Hillforts. As you probably recall, Hillforts tend to be a lot larger than they sound like. When you hear Hillfort, you probably think of something similar to a Mott and Bailey, something along the lines of what Mel Gibson burned down at the start of Braveheart. In reality, quite a few of these things were closer to the scale of Rohan in Lord of the Rings. They were big and impressive constructions. Now, when we last spoke about them, we discussed the Hillforts in Scotland, but I can't tell you how fortunate we are to be able to talk with Aaron and Fiona regarding their project in Denbyshire. The hillforts they're working on are still somewhat mysterious and unknown. We're still learning a great deal about them, and with luck, we'll be learning even more over the coming years. This really is a great opportunity for us. And after this episode, if you'd like more information, and I suspect you will, or if you'd like to find ways to get involved, you can find more information at www.heatherandhillfords.co.uk. They're also on Twitter with the handle at Heather Hillfort. And you can find them on Facebook at facebook.com slash heatherandhillforts. And all of these links can also be found on my site, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Okay, let's get this going. So I'm here today with Aaron Robinson, the Community Participation Officer for the Denbyshire Hillforts. And I'm also here with Fiona Gale, the County Archaeologist. And we're going to be talking a little bit about the Denbyshire Hillforts and the GLOW experiments and what they're doing out there. So, Aaron and Fiona, to start out with, can you give us a quick overview of the sites we're going to be talking about today? Yep. With particular project we've been working on for oh, five years now, Heather and Hillforts, focuses on six Iron Age Hillforts. Iron Age, about two and a half thousand years ago, we think they were built. And there's six of these uh, hilltop sites ranging from Penaclodii in the north through Molathir, Morligar Clambeda, Morventley, then down to Morligar Clanticillia on Cardroen. Uh, they cover an area, I suppose there's about, as the crow flies, 20 miles from the southernmost one to the northernmost one, something like that. They're sites that have got big earthen banks enclosing the hilltop, although one has stone banks enclosing the hilltop, and they enclose quite large areas of land the largest is acres in the state still, I think, about 90 acres, uh, down to perhaps 10, 15 acres enclosed. And that, it's where we think people were living in the Iron Age period, in the Celtic period, here in, in North Wales, in the rest of Wales, and down through Britain and Scotland as well. Okay, so uh, 90 acres, that's, that's pretty sizable. Um, so, so you mentioned that people were uh, possibly living within these hill forts. Did I hear mm-hmm. that right? Yep, that's right. So was there access to water and, and the sort of things that you need? Because we've been speaking in the earlier podcasts about some of the sites mm-hmm. up in Scotland where there wasn't really the, – the, the hill forts that we were talking about weren't really the best situation for, for actual living. So they weren't mm-hmm. sure what they were used for. Are these hill forts different? Some of them, and although in plan, they're most probably very similar to some of the Scottish ones. Two of the ones that 
we've been looking at do have a water source within them, a spring, which is quite unusual on top of the hill, but they have a spring. Um, the others don't. They have sort of boggy areas, but which you could have perhaps got water from, could have made a well or something like that. What we have got, though, are little terraces within them, circular-shaped terraces cut into the hillside, and we've done some geophysical work, which seems to indicate that there's possible houses on these terraced areas. And that it, within some of the hill forts, there are flatter areas, and there seem to be houses on them. Certainly, Penaclodii and Morventli, which are the two largest, have got evidence of lots of these house platforms, which we are jumping to the conclusion is that they had houses on them. Now, whether people lived in those houses all year round or whether they went up there for certain periods or even tens of years at a time and then moved somewhere else, we don't really know. Um, that's why we've been trying to do some first of all, survey work on them and beginning to get universities interested in doing some excavation to try and find out. But we think people were living up there. That actually was exactly what I was going to start asking about, which was uh, excavations and the like. Have, have, you, have you done any excavations where you found artifacts and the sort of things that you typically see when people have inhabited an area for... Mm. We, we've done some excavations, only a little bit so far. Um, about three years ago, we did a very small trench across um, what we think is an earlier Bronze Age, so maybe 4,000-year-old burial mound that's enclosed by within one of the hill forts um, and has had been being worn away. Found no artifacts to date it. It had been robbed before someone else had had a go at digging in it. And sadly, in the past, when people have excavated on some of these hill forts, they've barely found any artifacts. The people who were living in the area at this time didn't seem to use pottery. So you don't find broken bits of pottery. You find the occasional broken bit of um, a type of clay fabric that was used to transport salt around but we haven't we haven't found anything like that but we have managed to entice uh, Professor Ray Carr from Bangor and um, Professor Gary Locke from Oxford and Rachel Pope, Dr Rachel Pope from Liverpool who are just beginning to do some excavation in these sites so we hope that maybe if, if you were asking that same question in a year or two's time we might have a different answer than now at the moment we haven't really got artifacts. You know, that's fascinating that you don't typically find pottery in sites like mm. this. This is in the, the post-Beaker people yep. era. Yep, and in other parts of Britain, uh, southern Britain, even southern Wales, there's pottery in the Iron Age. But for some reason in this area, they must have used something else, wood, um, leather. And there is a hill fort further south than here called the Brythen. And there they had a very waterlogged area and they did find wooden bowls and wooden implements. Maybe that's what people were using here, and they've just disintegrated in the intervening years. So with regard to these hill forts, how many hill forts have we found so far in this chain? The project I'm working on with Bangor University as part of my research is looking at the six hill forts that are on the Cluidian Range itself. They're slightly different to the six that we work on in the Heather and Hill Forts project. Um, the most northerly one in the Heather and Hillforts project is Penaclothii, as we said before. Um, but the Cluedian range of hills actually goes on further north towards the sea. And there's there's two further up there, another Moyla Gaird. Um, Moyle means kind of flat top. Um, and Gaird means 
fort. Uh, so we have a lot of Moila guides, uh, hill forts in the area. So Moila guide at Bodfari, and then a bit further up, uh, one called Moil Hirazig. Um, that's a little bit different to the other ones, as that's got rubble stone walls there too. Um, that's actually on a limestone outcrop compared to the other five on the Cluedian range that are actually made out of, um, it's kind of quite a scree Slaty, mudstony, yeah. shale type rock. Shale, that's that's the word really. It's it's not great for building, basically. Uh, but the one at Moil Harazig is on this limestone, so it makes better building material. Moil Harazig is an interesting one because only two thirds of it actually still exists today because there was a big quarry uh, built into it in the, the 70s, 80s. But it did mean that local archaeologists were able to excavate it and help answer some of these unanswered questions that we find very, very difficult to answer with, with very little artefacts. The limestone actually helping to preserve in some cases. So they found, uh, we don't have much information about them, but um, two inhumations, so skeletons, which generally don't survive in the Welsh soil because it's so acidic. So it's another thing that we don't find. We don't find the pottery, we don't find bones, and they generally didn't use coins in this area either. So Moynihan, it brought up a lot of, of new things to light about hillforts in the area. But the study area I'm working on with Bangor is actually a 30-mile radius from the Cluedian range. And we're looking at way over 100 hillforts in that kind of small area. There's an awful lot of hillforts, so we're trying to find out why exactly. God, you've got a bunch of questions related to that. To start with, you mentioned that the soil in Wales is acidic, and consequently you don't find bones and pottery and the like. Certainly in the upland areas. Yeah, in the upland areas, it's acidic. So this is something that I don't have a lot of experience in. So the acidity of the the soil can be so great that it can actually break down pottery in addition to more organic material. Pottery, I don't think, but certainly the organic material, bone, and metalwork. It couldn't. Metalwork doesn't seem to survive. Okay, so uh, Moil Hrothig. So you mentioned that that uh, there were limestone walls and shale, and that there was a series of excavations that were able to happen as a result of the unfortunate uh, quarrying. What exactly did we find at uh, at that hill fort? Um, well, it was a really really interesting one because they were able to look into um. As Fiona was saying earlier, these flat areas within the hill fort to see if they contained round houses or structures of some kind. Also, a few of them were made out of stone, so they were able to excavate them and uh, actually find hearths inside them. They were also able to look into the entrances of these hill forts. Um, entrances, if the hill forts are fortresses, this is a weak point, so it'd be really kind of key uh, for the fortress itself. Um, and on one of them, they found lots, a series of lots of little small stones that they, they somebody has interpreted as possible slingshots, possibly to defend the hill forts. But the reason why it's it's so important is when they were originally putting in the the quarry road. This is back in the 19th century, yeah, I think. late 19th century, yeah. 18 and 80s, 1890s, very long time ago, um, way before, you know, before archaeology was, it's more of an antiquarian kind of pastime, really. They found this amazing, uh, well, a collection of, of metals, again, we're going back to the limestone, and so it makes it a bit more alkaline, maybe this is why it survived so well, part of a, an amazing shield boss and kind of plates, decorated plates in, in a lovely kind of early 1st century BC style that we, we associate with the Iron Age, which is now on, on display in the National Museum of Wales. So it brought up a lot of <laughs> a lot of answers for the hill forts, but also created a lot more questions. Unfortunately, 
but it is you know part of yeah, that seems to be what archaeology does. You start off with the set of questions, which might be quite basic. Why is this hill fort there? When was it built? Uh, were there houses in it? And you start doing some excavation or exploration, and you find maybe the houses. So you then start asking other questions about what, how were they built, who lived there, how many. And you, you just ask, start generating more questions the more you find out, which is the fascination of it, I guess. Absolutely. You mentioned the hearts and, and the imprints that give the impression that there was housing there. The hearths in particular sound like you have much more of a, a hard proof that there was housing there. Mm-hmm. Can, can you explain a little bit what they looked like? For example, did they, did they look like the, the Stone Age hearths that we found up in Scotland? Did they look closer to, uh, to what they would look like later on in the Celtic period for those excavations that we found? Or... The actual, where they found a hearth, a fire, it'll, it won't look anything special at all. It'll just be a burnt bit of ground that might be down to a few inches, something like that. A bit scrappy looking. But we, there is evidence, um, in, there's one very special piece of metalwork called Capogarman Fire Dog, which is a fantastically elaborate ironwork um, hearth of something that would have sat either side of a hearth. So where the timbers perhaps that you were burning would have straddled to, and then you'd have been able to hang your whatever your cooking pot or whatever it was above that. But that presumably was fairly special and work to reconstruct that object took a year of blacksmith's time so presumably it was a very valuable object. So I suspect the fires in the middle of a a roundhouse might have been a bit like a campfire for the Cub Scouts nowadays, a few stones around and your um, timber in the middle, I guess. So you mentioned that there were a lot of hill forts in North Wales. About how close together were they typically situated? Or was this just a, if there's a good hill, then they build a hill fort on it? Uh, can, can you tell? Erin would be one to answer this because part of what she's looking at is well, why are there some hills that look like they ought to have a hill fort on and they don't. They are the ones in the Cluedian Range are quite close. Some Penaclodii and Monartha are only two miles apart as the crow flies, uh, and then between Penaclodii and Morbentley, which has got four hill forts in it, you're only maybe six miles. But then there are other hills in between. So in that, you've been working on why some of those don't have forts on. Yeah, beginning absolutely. to think of that. And also, we don't know necessarily whether these were all used at the same time and for the same purpose. Mm-hmm. If we're looking at the Iron Age, and again, we all, <laughs> you'll find this with archaeologists a lot, we only ever say probably or possibly the Iron Age, because many of them we don't have uh, secure dates for. But we, we don't know if one of them might have been built in 800 BC, used for 100 years, abandoned, and then another one used from mm-hmm. 200 BC. So at the moment, we don't know exactly when they were built, if they were used for the same reason, whether they were friends, family, enemies. We're not really that sure. But then there are, as Fiona says, there are some hills that, that look like they should have hill forts on them, such as Moil Vamai, which is the highest peak in the Cluidian range. It's it's quite an iconic peak in, in the area. We have around 200,000 visitors every year. There's no hill fort on there, but there are rumours or antiquarian reports that, that there was a Bronze Age burial mound on the summit um, before a tower was built in 1810. It's possible that maybe it was some place of significance 
that they didn't want to build on. Moyle um, Vamai loosely translates as, as Mother Mountain, uh, seen for miles, so possibly this is a sacred place. Mm. But then flipping the coin again, many of the hill forts that we have in the area do take into account. This is what Fiona's research herself uh, was on. You have Bronze Age burial mounds in the centre of them. So once again, the answer is we don't really know. <laughs> So I, I realize that, that there's not a lot that, that we know for, mm. for certain, but uh, do we have any theories about the people who built these hill forts and used them? And do we have any clues as to the culture that was developing around that time? Um, I guess, yes, we've got ideas, I guess. The, this general area of northeast Wales, um, by the time the Romans are taking an interest in Britain, they're calling it the tribal area of the Decay Angli. And they, it's sort of the whole northeast Wales area seems to fall into that, this area that's got 30 or 40 or more hillforts within it. We don't have a lot of information about people, as Erin said. We haven't got their skeletons, and that's always a useful way of getting an indication of population, ages, disease, all those sorts of things. But just looking at the hill forts themselves and thinking about the type of community that had to build them, just the amount of work, the type of work, the planning that must have gone into laying them out, we start beginning to perhaps be talking about a society, a culture that's more organised perhaps than, the, certainly than, say, the Romans were suggesting and that maybe our our view now, until fairly recently, was perhaps that it, people were not particularly organised. But then you look at these sites and you think about how they built them, the numbers of people you might have needed. If you've got people building, they're not tending the fields that they need to eat, so there's a surplus of food in the economy. So we're beginning to see a more complicated sort of society. Now, you mentioned the Decae Angli, and uh, my understanding is that's a term that came about following the, uh, the Roman conquest. It was a, that's, well, at least that's, that's the source for the word that we have. Is that correct? Yes. The, well, there, I think there, from about 150 BC or so, the Roman Empire is taking a, an interest in areas outside of it, and there are, you start getting a few... Maps is a fairly grand term for what they are, but little um, illustrations and lists of the tribal areas in Britain. Uh, And you do get the Decay Angli mentioned, and then as you get nearer to the Roman conquest, yes, there's fairly distinct tribal areas that the Romans are referring to, and the Decay Angli as a term seems to become fixed. But whether the population themselves saw them as that broader group, we don't really know. know, There's something to remember is that they didn't have a written language. So, again, we go back to the fact that we don't have their skeletons, we don't have metal, bowls, coins. We also don't have anything written down from the actual period apart from by the Romans, Mm. who, as Fiona's mentioned, might not be necessarily true. They were the winning side. They wrote the history. They could write what they want. Um, So we don't necessarily know. But something that did come to light, um, the area, especially where we're uh, sitting right now broadcasting from, uh, is quite rich in lead, which the Romans Mm. liked an awful lot. And there is, there has been a a pig of lead found, Mm. isn't it, which, which said something along the lines of Becky Angley. Yes, there are some with the name of the tribal area on them and individuals' names as well. Yeah, so it kind of makes 
makes you think that it's starting to be a, um, a term for the, the local area, whether, mm. whether it was before mm. or not, I'm sure. And the suggestion with the lead, we find these lead pigs that are definitely Roman, but they're fairly early for this area, sort of 50s, 60s AD, where, and at that time, Romans hadn't properly conquered North <laughs> Wales. There is certainly the thinking that actually there was a lead industry, if you like, maybe fairly cottage industry-like, but on small scale, but a lead industry here before the Romans arrived in the area. And I think you do find the occasional lead loom weight or something like that. But so there's a suggestion that the lead in the limestone might have been exploited before the Romans came and that they sort of took over um, an embryonic industry. That's fascinating. So it's from the 50s and 60s. So this is the period with Caractacus and Boudicca that we're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. We already had lead yeah. pigs being, wow. And yeah. did I hear you and correctly? The, that, oh, go ahead. So I was going to say one of these lead pigs, I think, I think maybe only one, maybe more, has the name of somebody on it, uh, Nippius Ascanius, I think. But that name, he's presumably a producer, an expert in making lead, that name occurs um, from the Cheddar um, area down towards Somerset um, slightly earlier. So that's an actual person, presumably bringing up some skills from that area, the Mendip, up to this area, again, early in the Roman period. Well, that leads into an excellent question, which is, do we have any idea how these hill forts, or at least these sites that once contained hill forts, were used during the Romano-British period or during the Roman occupation period? Not a lot. (laughs) Not a very satisfactory (laughs) answer, is it? No, we don't. One of the hill forts in the Heather and Hillforts area, more Bentley, in 1816, I think it was, early 19th century, a hoard, a collection of Roman coins was found, about 1,500 of them. Um, they were found after a part of the mountain was burning and they came to light. Um, and then, following that, there were small excavations in three of the hillforts and supposedly Roman pottery was found but we haven't got that anymore, so we can't double-check that. Although uh, there's an archaeologist, an ancient archaeologist called Mortimer Wheeler, um, and he saw that pottery in the 1920s, and he was someone that had had a lot of experience of excavating Roman sites, so knew Roman pottery when he saw it. So there are hints, but no definite evidence. What about Denorben? Denorben um, is another hill fort. Uh, very close by. Um, Near Abergelly? Yes, just above Abergelly. And it's it's unfortunately been subject to quarrying again. In fact, nothing is left whatsoever today. But that was subject to, to huge excavations in the... Oh, actually, all through the last century, really. Yeah. But the 70s, yeah. mostly. And they found a lot and lots of different uh, phases of occupation going back to the, the Bronze Age through the Iron Age and then the Ro- Romano-British period mm. as well. Now, we can't say necessarily that that's the Romans coming there and living there or whether it's just, um, again, a phase of occupation by native peoples who perhaps have taken on the the implements. The, yes, the, the fashionable objects of the time, which happened to be Roman, the right, same imprimatur right. or the whatever. Well, and the Romans were very big on Romanizing the natives, so... Yes, <laughs> and they, they used sort of local power structures that were already in place to help them keep the natives in the, in the right place and from their perspective. So I thought that it might be good if we talk a little bit about each of the major uh, Heather Hill forts and what makes them special. 
So why don't we start with Caradruin? What makes this particular hill fort special? Caradruin is um, very different to the other five that we've been looking at in the Heather and Hill Forts project. It's still largely stone built. So what you see now is a great, great big, almost rubble spread surrounding the hilltop and it would originally have been a very well constructed dry stone wall but massive not just like a field boundary type dry stone wall but three four meters high on the outside three four meters maybe five wide yards same sort of thing so that's very different because it's got this stone surround it also seem we've got different features at that site that show that we've got um development from maybe an earlier hill fort type we've got a bank and a ditch that is something earlier we're not quite sure what it is and then the main hill fort sits on top of that the main stone built hill fort and then there's a later um, partitioning off of an area and we've got the foundations of a roundhouse within that little partitioned off area hints that that could be not only after the Roman, the um, Iron Age period, but after the Roman period as well. But again, we don't know for sure. What do you think that the stone wall tells us? Why would this particular hill fort use a stone wall as opposed to many of the others? We're not sure. It's further west and the hill forts to the west in the northwest of Wales more traditionally do use stone. There's more stone available to use. Uh, and this hillfort very definitely is looking towards the west, so maybe the influence in its design is coming from that area. Have you got any ideas? Well, other than the fact that the geology it sits on makes for good building mm. material, really. It's, again, limestone. It's very blocky. It makes kind of nice blocky bricks, almost, or large stones, so you can build the dry stone more with its day. In fact, maybe a couple of hundred years ago, the, the farmer took advantage mm. of that, and there's a lot of dry stone walls in the area. Pinched <laughs> from the hillfort, most <laughs> so, probably. Um, and then, you know, other ones that are further east, we've got this kind of shaley stuff again that's just not, not good for building walls, but more for making heaps of earth and rubble. So, it, you know, there's probably a lot of different factors in it, but that would be the, the, one of the more um, sensible, mm. uh, you know... A sort of practical, practical solution to something. Okay, so uh, why do you think that we'd have one particular roundhouse in a partitioned area away from the rest of the hill fort? Are there any theories going regarding that? We think it's later in date. We're not 100% sure how much later, but we think it's later in date. Something, uh, it may even date to the period after the Romans, so the sort of, for want of a better word, Dark Age, post-Roman period. There certainly is evidence in other parts of Britain of people begin to reuse hill forts, go back to building circular structures rather than rectangular. But we don't know. I'm making it up a bit. (laughs) We think also the annex might be um, from a later period because even though we call it an annex, there doesn't appear to be any entrance Mm. from the annex into the hill fort proper, if you like. Mm. Um, You can get into the annex from outside, but you have to leave the annex to get into the the big hill Mm. fort. And um, so it almost looks like it's just a kind of a late tradition taking advantage of the, the topography and the materials are already there, perhaps. Um, we've also got kind of folk tales and legends mm. that help give us some idea. There's, again, Fiona's going to have to help me here with the. There's a lovely the story. Droin is a giant. 
uh, and in all, he wanted to do something for his beloved and what he did was build her an enclosure of about an acre in extent where she was able to milk her cows. Well, it's quite nice to think of this little annex, this little partitioned off area as the enclosure where later post-Roman people, Drowin's beloved, milked their cows. <laughs> But Drowin, um, well, Cow Drowin, is, it's an interesting name in itself for the Hillfolk because we do have Drowin the giant who perhaps had his beloved who milked her cows in there. Um, but also there's a, a couple of different theories as to what that name mm. means. Um, Welsh is a beautifully descriptive language. Um, Cair, as I've mentioned earlier with the Moila Gair Hillforts we have, Cair Gair means fort. Um, but the Drowin has been interpreted as possibly uh, Dre or tre means town and win gwyn means white so it could possibly mean fort of the white town so when the limestone has actually been kind of excavated and built into this wall it almost shone in the sunshine um there's also you find quartz up there occasionally so whether that made it look kind of sparkly and white um, and then also you could say dre win win vine some people say that the romans grew vines up there for their wine so it's again it really helps give you some idea of the possibilities that, that might come all just from one name, basically. So we, we know that there was a roundhouse in a partitioned area. Were there also roundhouses within Cardwin? See, we've done, um, there's not, none that you can see um, as stone walls, which is what you can see in this partitioned off area, but topographical survey work inside, which is just getting a, a good plan of what's inside, has showed up some level patches, that patch, areas that where the ground has been artificially leveled. Now, we're presuming that's because there were houses on them. Rather like if you want to pitch a tent, you find a flat place, or you make a flat place. If you want to build a house, you, you level the ground first. Of course. Uh, are there any estimates on how many families this might have been able to house? Well, hmm. Again, it's difficult. Um, Cadron has only got about 10 of these platforms within it. And you could imagine a house with an extended family in on each one. So you could imagine an extended family, six, eight people. You multiply that up, you've got quite a lot of people. Yeah. But if we're talking about a long period of time, we could be just two houses at a time. So we don't know. So it's quite fluid and very difficult to work out numbers. Penaclodii fill fort, and no, we're not talking about that particular minute, but oh, that yeah. has something like that has <laughs> thank you. That has about ninety of these little terrace areas. And if you imagine that with a house on each one all at the same time, you've got um, a bustling village, which it may have been, but it may not have been. So speaking about Penaclodii, um, can you tell us a little bit about that fort? The hill fort is one of the largest hill forts in Wales. It's an absolutely, absolutely massive structure. If you approach the hill fort from the southern entrance and walk all the way through to the northern ramparts, you're actually covering about half a mile. To go all the way around the ramparts covering the circumference, that's about a mile in circuit. So it's absolutely massive. But this brings up questions in itself. If we're talking about hill forts as fortresses, places that would defend, um, if you're stood in the middle, you can't see from one side to the other. So it would be actually very hard to defend. There are two entrances at Penaclodiae. 
um, one looking out towards the east and one looking down towards the south. Um, but a lot, a lot of the hill forts we've got in the area actually do seem to either sit next to or, or overlook passes through the Cluidian Range. This is possibly a clue as to why there are so many hill forts on the Cluidian Range because it's almost the hills themselves are almost a barrier to get through into possibly a different territory or anything like that and, and whether these are actually situated here to kind of keep an eye out who's passing through but the hillfort itself it's got a, a spring in the middle which is still kind of wet today mostly through the year and we have done quite a lot of survey work up there we do find a lot of these kind of terraces these platforms where they've, they've been kind of cut out to potentially have structures on potentially also used to, to to quarry material out to help make the the banks and, and and ditches that surround the hill fort to make it into a you know an enclosure but the survey work has also brought up um geophysical results that show previously unknown i'll call them round houses these round mm. structures that could potentially be houses um some even with possible yards attached to them some of them surrounding the the pond so when you when you see stuff like that with again possible hearth a very very strong response coming back from the survey possibly a hearth in the middle overlooking the pond in this beautiful area on this magnificent kind of hill surrounded by landscape um you can almost put yourself back into you know i know why they were here you could kind of imagine yourself snuggling around the fire in a quite a lovely community as well especially if if it was a community if there were 90 houses perhaps there or or just a few at different times it was a a multi-phase site lived in for a long time it 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 really is a pleasant place to be Mm. the other thing to say about Penaclodio as well is um the excavation that we had a a few years ago on the burial mound was at Penaclodio and that actually takes us to a different story altogether from the Iron Age. Um, Fascinating story, which I hope be very interesting to your listeners. When the archaeologists were excavating the potential burial mound, the one that had been um, eroded away by by walkers, a national footpath goes all the way through from South Wales to North Wales. It kind of goes over this burial mound, so it got um, a little bit eroded away. Um, But when they were digging this to look for this 4,000-year-old feature um there was a, a walker's cairn on top which is basically a pile of stones i don't know how else to describe yeah, it people really walk along they put stones on high points just, just what happens you end up with a mound of stones <laughs> so it might be fairly basic in our psyche i think yeah i think everybody likes to do it um possibly 100 200 years old if that's but however um we took it down and there's another one up now so <laughs> we don't know what it is um, but when they were actually doing that, they, they came across a, a, a stone that had an inscription on it. And through kind of further inspection of it, they found that it read um, Carlisle D. Chamberlain, Canadian Army, Prospect, Kentucky, USA, which was very interesting. So um, when we got back to the office, we, we kind of typed it into to Google and looked up his army records. And we were able to get a little bit of information mm. about him. And we found that he was situated at Kimmel Camp, which um, is near Abergelly, which we were talking about earlier, um, stationed there in, in World War One. But we, we put out a press release to say, does anybody know any more information about this man? And through the powers that is the, the internet, I suppose, the BBC picked up the press release published that and then the Canadian press picked up the BBC's press release um a few what was it weeks fairly quickly yeah. um his 
his grandson. grandson got in touch to say yes this is my my granddad um he was an amazing man he loved history and if he'd have known that there was an ancient fort up on top of that hill he'd have been up there the first first afternoon he got off he would have been up there to go and explore and so he would have he would have written his name up there but the story goes on because why is he in the canadian army if he's from prospect in kentucky and it turned out that um he was kind of desperate to come and fight for his country basically but he was too young um, to get into the army so he kind of legged it over the border to Canada <laughs> lied about his age and was able to be posted over to Britain apparently he never he never went to, to fight but he came back and then apparently by World War Two, he was too old to fight so once again lied about his age to be able to come and protect his country and got I think it was somewhere like Burma or something he ended up. Um but the end and the end of his days after the wars he survived, fantastic story, and uh, was ended up as a museum curator in the US. Wow. So an amazing <laughs> gentleman. Yeah. And sort of reiterates the importance of these places still today. Mm. Important in the Iron Age, important two and a half thousand years ago, but people still really relating to these places. Right, right. Yeah, that's a great story. So getting back to the burial mound, because I find this fascinating. So because of the acidity of the soil, we pretty much just can determine that it, it was a potential burial mound because of the stones. Is that correct? Yes. Also, we, what we wanted to do, first of all, was assure ourselves that it was um, you know, a human-made mound. It wasn't natural, and that we could tell very quickly and easily. But the first thing we found was that someone had dug a hole in the middle of it, maybe 150, 200 years ago. It was a fairly common activity um, in the 19th century. A nice afternoon, you'd go up and you might go up to the hills and you'd dig a hole in the middle of one of these burial mounds because you might find something special. You might find treasure. You might find something interesting. So we think, because we didn't find any remains of a burial, partly because of the soil conditions, but no trace of anything. A few little stones that were perhaps the side of a burial um, cyst. But so what we presume is that someone else 150, 200 years ago thought it was a Bronze Age burial mound and had a good go through it. And if there was anything, it was taken out then. Well, what we did find was a very neat hole. Yes. So somebody had definitely dug into it, basically. So they just hadn't left as much, apart from a penny, I think, and some a bit of glass bottle. Yeah. So play, play pipe then, I think, too. Which helps us date it to kind of the time when they yeah. were yeah. using this as a hobby. Mid-19th century, yeah. Well, uh, actually, if you don't mind deviating a little bit, you mentioned that you were able to quickly determine that the mounds weren't natural and were instead man-made. Can you walk through how that's exactly done? It's the sort of layering of the material within it. So it's not just... Um, Sometimes a mound might, it could have been a glacier mound that the material left after a glacier went past and it would just be natural stones or sort of haphazard. But they could pick out that there were layers within it so it had been constructed by human activity rather than by natural activity. So, and you also mentioned when we were talking about uh, Druin that you were able to determine that parts were built at later dates and that sort of thing. How do you come to that determination? At Cadroin, we were able to tell, because we did a detailed survey, detailed plan of the whole place, um, we knew there was a bank that had an opening within it that either butted up to the stone 
hill fort or went underneath it or on top of it. Well, the survey work was able to show that actually it went underneath because a bit of its ditch was found inside the stone hill fort. So what we had was a bank with a stone wall on top of it. So therefore the bank had to come first and the stone wall second. So we can't say when each was built, but we can say that one predates the other. It's relative dating. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay, so let's let's switch gears a little bit. We've talked about Pennyclothii. Why don't we talk about the other hill fort that has a potential burial mound inside? So can you tell us a little bit about uh, Mulvenley? That's a very large hill fort as well. Not as big as Pennyclothii. It's something like, I'm thinking trying to frantically change hectares to acres, and I'm not very good at that. It must be about 60 acres uh, enclosed um, by the ramparts, the banks. Uh, survey work seems to show that we've got about 60 or 70 of these house hut platforms within it, terraced areas, flattened areas. It has one entranceway, one way in and out, um, which is at the, it's also dipped. So where the entrance in is lower by about 40 yards than the highest point, which is where the burial mound is. The highest point has the burial mound in it. The burial mound has never been explored. The hill fort itself was where the hoard of Roman coins was found in the early 19th century and had a little bit of work done in the mid-19th century. Part of Mulbentley has very small banks around it, but part has massive double banks with little steps within those banks. We can't be certain without doing some excavation whether those two banks with their little extra bits are different dates or whether they're all the same construction. The likelihood is that you've got an inner bank and then later on you build an outer one, but we, you can't be confident in saying that. Morventley does have a spring within it and there seems to be a cluster of these house platforms around the spring, which like Pentecost, yeah, and makes sense. If you've got a water source, you don't want to be trudging too far to get it. So you, you live around that. The hillforts as they are now are just earthen banks and ditches. Other sites in other areas where there have been excava- excavations have shown up that you've had wooden palisades on top of these banks. So perhaps that was the case at all of these hillforts and more Bentley as well. Bentley, Bentley is another giant, it's, um, a mythical figure, I guess. And interestingly, his name is associated with another burial mound um, that was destroyed in the 19th century in the nearby town of Mould, um, and the largest piece of Bronze Age um, gold work was found in that mound. But Bentley, the name, is associated with that place where this gold work was found, but also the hill fort of Mould Bentley. Well, you've just given me a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. So, <laughs> so to start with, you, you mentioned the, uh, the hoard of, of Roman coins that were found inside the fort, almost like it was a throwaway line, and, uh, and my ears perked up. So the fact that we found a hoard of Roman coins, do we, do we have a date for when we think those, uh, those coins were, were buried? I, I, I'd need to check properly, but I think they're about 2nd or 3rd century A.D., Okay. The dates of the coins range, you know, there's quite a range of dates. 
but I think the cutoff is about third century AD. So this was well within the period when uh, when Wales was already firmly under the control of, of yes. Rome. Yes, and um, at the foot of the hill fort of Mor Bentley, where the, the coin hoard was buried, um, there's a town called Rutin, uh, and that has um, Roman origins, possibly a Roman fort somewhere, although we haven't found it, but definitely Roman occupation. So is there any theories regarding why this hoard might have been buried, such as, I mean, there's, of course, a lot of turmoil in, in, uh, in Romano-British history, but uh, is there any theories as to why this particular hoard was buried and why it would be buried there? Not particular theories about this particular hoard, I guess. Over, similar ideas to, as to any hoards, people burying their wealth with a view to coming back, generally. Uh, and third century, um, there's quite a lot of upheaval going on in Britain in the third century, so maybe that is why. Why you take it right to the top of the hill, unless there is some Roman occupation up there, which was hinted at by excavations in the mid-19th century, but we've got no real trace of that and no evidence of that. And we're not doing any current excavations of that site? Not at that site, no. The... The current thinking says that if there's not a threat, you don't excavate, but we have managed to do some work and we are about to do some others via um, various universities in the area, but at more Bentley, no, there are no proposals to excavate at the moment. That's strange because it sounds like it's, it's, it's a hell of a find. We've got the hoard, there's the possible burial mound inside, and uh, given the size of it in the presence of a spring, it sounds like it might have been used for a more permanent housing situation mm-hmm. than uh than some of the the hill forts yeah. that so. yeah um so much like the pond that we were talking about the spring would mm-hmm. probably also provide year-round water so you didn't have to go for for a trek mm-hmm. that sort of thing right yeah yeah so here's here's another question regarding uh Moyo Ventley. can you tell me a little bit about the giant and his story since mm-hmm. uh Drowen had such a um a story attached Yes, I'm, I'm not. There are stories about Bentley, but I'm not sure of them. Um, I think in relation to this burial mound in Mould, this giant figure Bentley was supposedly striding around in a golden um, cloak or something. So the stories said, but I don't really know enough about Bentley to uh, talk about him. It might be worth um, if if you wanted to. If we found something mm. maybe putting a link on your your page where the podcast is because i know there's a couple of interesting mm. stories including one about this tremendous lightning storm yeah. being associated with them um, this is kind of going more into again the, the dark ages um with a, a kind of kingdom of yao which is after mm. the roman occupation which is a fascinating story you just can't remember it mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> this might be something to maybe link to later if that might oh, be definitely. okay once we get all the sites with the stories on them what i'll do is i'll have them on the website the british history and users can go and click on the links and get oh, to all the different good. stories so why don't we move on to molly garland better what made that particular hill fort unique not unique, but it's very different to the other ones that we've been looking at. It is on a top of a hill, but it's a top of a hill that's a spur into a valley that is overlooked by the ridge. So um, it's completely overlooked and by higher ground, which you could say um, doesn't work if you're thinking of a fortification. But it very much um, is looking at the very broad valley that it's sort of poking into, if you like. Um, 
about 12 acres, uh, 12 hectares. So that's about oh, 25-30 acres. I'm not so good on the acres and hectares. Um, much smaller than more Bentley and Penaclodii. Similar sort of size to Cadroin. Earthen banks, ditches, rock cut ditches. Evidence of burning on the ramparts, which we weren't sure whether might be the whole surround of the ramparts. I don't know whether when you talk to um, people about Scottish hill forts, they may have mentioned vitrified um, sites where the ramparts were burnt to make them like rock, really, so that the earth and the stone and everything forms a rock-like stuff. Yeah. So we didn't know whether we had something like that on one of the ramparts. Yeah, vitrification is actually a really interesting thing. My recollection mm-hmm. is that that you need really high temperatures to pull it off, but I'm I'm not. Yes, you do. Can you explain a little bit about what would be necessary? What sort of resources mm-hmm. would be need that needed that sort of thing? Vitrification um, is where earth and rock has got to a very very high temperature. We think about thirteen hundred degrees um, Celsius. How it got to that temperature? We don't know, although in the Iron Age, obviously there's a clue in the name, the Iron Age, people were using iron, and to smelt iron you need to get to temperatures of about 1300 degrees. So to get to those sort of temperatures, people were obviously able to control fires, get um, bellows to get the air into the fire, to get the temperature right up high. Now vitrified forts in Scotland, I guess we have to imagine um, this earth, the, the bank, the rampart of the hill fort, maybe cloaked in timber that you then set fire to, and just the temperatures get to the point where the outer areas of the bank vitrify. That may be what happened here at um, Mollegar Clambeda. When you talk to your contacts in Scotland about the hill forts, they, they did try some experimental archaeology there, trying to get to these temperatures mm. and failed today. So we know this is another kind of clue to the fact that we're dealing with a complicated society, very intelligent people. And when the Romans reports that, you know, we're all savages and barbarians and running around naked and stuff like that, maybe we were, but we were certainly clever at the same time. <laughs> it was, um, <laughs> free, free and uh, running around. But yes, um, so it's, it's another clue that, you know, even today we can't actually recreate it with experimental archaeology. Um, so there's something very special going on. I had no idea about that. I mean, obviously, with modern technology, we're able to get to those temperatures, but we yeah. just have been completely unable, using what we know of the technology at the time, to hit those temperatures. So there must be some, some oh, technology that we're not aware of. Or to hit those temperatures on a, an bank. earthen bank. Different oh. if you're trying to smelt metal, because you're doing that in, in, in an enclosed area, a sort of small furnace-like thing that clay, maybe constructed of clay or something of that sort. And pumping air into it to get the temperatures so you've got rudimentary bellows and things and yes they could get to those temperatures to smelt iron because you need to get to 1300 degrees celsius to actually extract the molten iron the metal from the rock right right that's really interesting that that actually uh um, rather than answering any questions that that raises a bunch (laughs) of questions for me uh we talked (laughs) all about yeah uh we we talked ages ago in the podcast about uh caractacus's last stand at uh and there there's there's evidence of of um of vitrification which 
and a lot of metalworking at um, Planet Manic too. Yeah, and I, I didn't really talk about it too much because we just didn't. I, I, I couldn't find any hard and fast. You know, this is why we think that it was, and uh, and I just assumed that maybe there, either there was vitrification for 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 defenses, or or maybe there was a fire that got out of control, but. To get to that sort of, of temperature, mm. fascinating. But again, it's raising more questions than it's answering. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely more common in Scotland. And I mm. think a lot of the ones that have been looked into are in um, East Lothian, which is very close to Edinburgh. And I think that's where they did the experiments as well. Um, and I know there's, there's a couple of uh, PhD students up there at the moment trying to figure out exactly what was going on. So hopefully, fingers crossed, they'll publish in the next couple of years to help us piece together the stories. So again, it's, it's helping by research all over Britain on these sites, we're able to potentially link it back to help answer some questions that we've got as well. I think what it's saying, though, is as much as anything that people, that we underestimate people's um, ability and their um, complexity and that being able to do these sort of things, whether it's metalworking or whether it's making, making a fort, a vitrified fort, in a way that we can't do today, is showing levels of technology and understanding beyond what we had previously thought cultures in Iron Age Britain had. So looking at your website, one other thing that I noticed about, about this particular uh, hill fort is that there is an annex on the, uh, the fort. Uh, what do we know about that? Not a great deal. We know it's there. We think it's a development phase of the fort, that it started more simply as um, maybe a single or even the perhaps a double rampart, but started simply and then that the annex was added on. We don't know what it was used for. It could have been for keeping stock in animals. Mm. From aerial pictures, we're able to see from the hill fort that there is a, a kind of a very faint mark in the, the fields, which suggests a, an earlier bank, which isn't in line with any of the other mm. the fields, so it could suggest an earlier field system linking up to the hill fort and I think the annex as well. So it's, it's possible that this could have helped with stocking closure. Mm. That's one theory. But the answer is that we really haven't got anything to base it on apart from the fact there's a possible mm. contemporary fields boundary next to it. With the annex, that leads in quite nicely because it's just to the north of where the entranceway um, at Moyla Geyer. And Moyla has got one of the most complex entrances in the area. Usually on these hill forts, we see what we call an interned entrance, which is where the ramparts and the banks kind of turn in towards the, the so interior, you in. yeah, making a funnel, almost to kind of help control of who's coming into the hill fort. It certainly makes you go in to this, this funnel where you're kind of under close watch, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but Moyla Gaer-Shambedder um, is kind of a dog-leg, kind of snaking passage to actually get through into the hill fort. You've got to turn left and then right, and then you get into this intern to be able to get inside. And so when we were doing the geophysical survey and we were getting these really high um, anomalies back where the the burning had taken place, we weren't sure if it's potentially near to where the annex is, north of the entranceway, whether it's where an earlier entrance had actually potentially been burnt down, whether on purpose, because then it would kind of get it out of the quay quickly or possibly even evidence of an attack on the hill fort. So, you know, we, we were looking into why potentially... This hillfort might have been made as this kind of simple structure with either one or two banks with potentially a, a, a kind of a single 
actually there's two entrances at Moynigan, mm-hmm. we'll come back to the other one in a second, a kind of a simple entrance, then another development phase might have been this kind of really quite complicated entrance, and then the annex added on as well, perhaps when the, the riches were getting better, maybe they had a good crop one year, so they were showing off how much power they had. Um, but then, as we, as we said, we, we, we found that the, um, the material that was inside this um, excavation that Bangor University did was actually bits of iron slag that had been brought up from potentially an earlier site somewhere else um, and used as a, a new deposit, possibly as an offering. But the other entrance at Moiragaya is again a really interesting mm. story because it's on the other side of the hill fort and as we mentioned earlier on it's, it kind of sits on a spur that kind of juts out into the valley, the Vale of Cluid, and um, so it's not on the actual main ridge of hills. And this entrance is actually completely ridiculously placed for access reasons. It's really steep and really, really steep. You'd never come approach the hill fort that way. From yeah. the valley, it's you, you just wouldn't do it. It's not practical at all. And then when you actually get inside the entrance, again, you're faced with another kind of upward slope. So it's it's not really practical. But if, sorry, if we imagine a timber fence all the way along it and a big gate mm. from the bottom of the valley, boy, would it look impressive. Exactly. So we go back towards the, the theory that perhaps this was a, a whole sort of a show of power. Mm. So when you're in the valley below, possibly... Again, one theory that these hill forts were places that perhaps ruled over the farmsteads that are in the valley below. Again, this is the theory. That when they looked up, they could see who was boss because they saw this amazing kind of structure on mm. top of the hill overlooking them. So it's it's possible that that's what it was for. But these these interned entrances are quite a feature in the Cluedian Range and surrounding area with them. Um, what we term guard chambers as well. Um, guard chambers, the same as Hillfort, it's a very kind of military sounding yeah. name for them and we've got no proof that these were chambers where guards yeah. were. You, you but... sort of imagine it's a bit like a sentry box with the chap in a busby sort of standing there in his uniform but it was nothing like that at all. <laughs> there are again lots of different theories as to what these recesses were. Well can you run me through a few uh, theories on what these these recesses, what these potential sentry towers uh, might have been for, guard towers might have been for? Well, I don't know about theories per se, but there's definitely been a lot of um, talk about why they might not be guard chambers. Um, One example being um, where the gates are actually positioned on the entranceways and where these recesses are. Potentially, when the gates were open, they might have blocked off these chambers if you like so it didn't actually make much use for you know, actually guarding it. There's a really interesting article by um, an archaeologist called Mark Bowden who was looking at different um, societies with similar structures and um, rather than potentially places where people would control people and things coming in um, but maybe something to do with going out um, so it could be some sort of again spiritual ritual place we don't necessarily find hearts in them or anything like that. Some of them have, where, where they've survived in the stone-built hill forts, look like they may have, have had roofs on them. Some of them don't survive in much detail whatsoever. So there's, again, a lot of kind of secrets and mysteries surrounding these recesses. But the interesting thing to keep a mind on is the fact that they're they're very very common in northeast wales and you don't find and, and the borders of wales and england but you don't really find them anywhere else so i mean you can start to think about potentially we're looking at this 
society. We're talking about tribes. Um, even if these hill forts date back to 800 BC, it's, it's potentially a place where people were, were in contact with each other, possibly keeping up with the Joneses or a traveling architect saying, oh, these guys down at Penaclovii have just decided to have these guard chambers put in. You know, you, you best you know, keep up with them to keep on top of things. Um, and with the, the actual interns, where we were talking about the, the ramparts actually interning to make the funnel to the interior of the hill fort, um, and Moinaga Shambeda, you can almost see where it's possible that these interns have been kind of popped on, if you like. They're a secondary feature because they don't quite join up with the, out, the, the actual rampart itself. So it's almost like it's a secondary feature. Um, so, you know, development of the hill fort, a secondary phase. So it does look like um, potentially these hill forts are being added onto as and when to kind of keep up with the, the, the power. The, and the latest sort of fashion in a mm. way, this is how you do your gateway, you need your guard chambers. And, and you want to keep up and that does, the more you can keep up, the more that shows your power and your prestige. Okay, so we have two hill forts left for the Heather Hill Forts. Next up, I think we should talk probably about Mole Arthur. Can you give me a quick rundown of what Mole Arthur looked like? Maybe what it was used for, that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, Mole Arthur is the sort of second one south, if you like, in the Cluidian Range and the ones we're looking at. Quite small. It's a very distinctive shaped hill, a sort of conical hill. It really sticks out in the landscape. It's very easy to pick out. would have been easy to pick out without a hill fort on it as well. It's a very conical hill, massive banks, double banks on the uh, northern side, which is the side that faces Penaclodii Hill Fort. They're only about two miles apart. Virtually no bank on the southern side, just a sort of shelf. Now it's just like a footpath shelf around. So very different one side to the other, much, much smaller. Um, something like, I don't know, eight, ten acres, quite, quite small. Survey work has, we've got detail of the banks and we think we can suggest a development from a circular hill fort with just the one large bank and then the, the inner bank was the later one constructed. That seems to be what the remains on the ground are showing us. Quite, um, not, not so much a complicated entranceway, but an interned entranceway as Erin has described. Uh, on other sites, but quite a long funnel in. And there are suggestions that it funnels you in such that if, if you were carrying off sword and a shield, you're, you're going to be put at a disadvantage because the way it takes you in opens up your body to potentially to fire or whatever, but who knows whether that's right or not. But it's quite a long funneled entrance. Not many um, platforms where buildings could have been built. We've got three, four, five, not, not much. It, uh, just inside the entranceway, there is certainly um, a terrace where there could have been a building, but not nearly so much in the way of buildings in the hill fort. There are suggestions that there might have been a burial mound, an earlier burial mound in the middle, but there's very ephemeral remains, We've, and we haven't tested whether that's the case or not. But interestingly, about 50 years ago now, I think, Three copper, but Bronze Age flat axes were found. Um, it seemed to be just, I think, within the hill fort. They, were, they showed up after a heavy rainfall, and someone who was visiting just found them on the surface. So there are hints that there is something earlier going on there. And these 
copper flat axes are very early in the Bronze Age period when they were making from the first metal tools they made, and they were mimicking stone tools really in these flat axes. And it's copper, not um, a copper alloy like bronze with copper mixed with tin, which is much harder and a better, makes a better tool. So Molas, um, very distinctive in the landscape, much smaller than both Penaclodiae and more Bentley, and it seems to have less in the way of occupation in it. So the Bronze Age axe, it's particularly interesting to me. I didn't know about that. And it's interesting in light of what we were talking about earlier with the acidity of the soil. Do we have any idea of why that would have been preserved? No. Having said metal is uh, disintegrated, no, we don't. Um, luck, I guess. <laughs> That's as good a reason as any. <laughs> Um, so I remember reading on your website that this particular fort had some of the largest ramparts of the local hill forts. Yes, they are enormous. Um, trying to think what sort of height from the top. And bear, we've got to bear in mind that we've had over 2,000 years of rain and weather to move material from the top of the rampart down into the bank. So the difference in height between the top of the rampart and the bottom of the bank now is less than it would have been. And if you then put on a, a fence on top of the rampart, it's even higher. But I would think um, 10, 12 yards, meters between the top of the rampart and the ditch, maybe even more. And then you have another bank outside of that with a maybe slightly less drop in height, but they are enormous. Wow. Uh, so do we have any theories on how this particular fort might have been used? No. <laughs> Whether... <laughs> <laughs> whether um, being so close to Penaclodiae, but we don't know the dates whether they were contemporary or different periods, but they are the hills that they're on are very different shapes, so I guess that inevitably the hill forts themselves would be very different shapes but there could be suggestions that they had different uses, different functions, but what those different functions were whether whether some's more know, spiritual use and others are more day-to-day living use but we don't really know Okay, last up is Molligaret Lanticilio. Um, what have we found at that particular site? At Molligaret Lanticilio, it's quite a small hill, a bit smaller than Molartha. Very simple, just a single bank around it, one entrance, interned entrance. We did do some excavation here um, two years ago, and that was um, following on um, survey work and geophysical survey work that had suggested there were quite a lot of um, house platforms within the hill fort. Um, the reason we wanted to do the excavation um, and test whether there was archaeology within the hill fort is because the site and the surrounding area suffers a lot of damage from motorbikes, 4 by 4 vehicles driving around. They're not supposed to drive around there, but, but they do. Um, and we wanted to know how close the archaeological remains if indeed they were there, were to the surface, the modern-day surface. So we put in a very small trench across an area where the geophysical survey had shown up that there should be a couple of house platforms, or flat areas. Uh, and sure enough, topsoil was taken off and straight down virtually onto the remains of these two roundhouses. Um, we just took a slice through the middle of them. We didn't get the whole of them. But you could see where the rock had been cut into to level it. 
and the two huts were sort of one butting up to the other, so one was earlier than the other. But the thing that we wanted to test was how vulnerable they were, and our answer was very vulnerable. They were within four inches, five inches of the um, current surface of the ground. So a few whizzes round on a scrambling bike or something and the evidence is gone. Um, so we've been working to try to um, lessen um, the cause of that damage. But it was very interesting to see that, yes, there are the, the geophysical survey was confirmed by the archaeology. That leads into a question that I was going to ask towards the end. And I suppose we are getting to close to the end. But what can people do to support and help preserve these sites since they're clearly very important? Find out more about them, I guess. And that's part of what we've been trying to do within the Heaven Hillforts project. And that's been largely Erin's role, enthusing other people, hopefully encouraging them to care. And in the case of somewhere like Mulligar Cantacilia, where we've got um, illegal off-road activity, report that activity to the police. But more, more than anything understand perhaps what these sites are, be enthused and excited by them, and try to look after them. Well, related to that, there are a number of different ways that people can get involved that I've, I've noticed on your site. For example, uh, you're doing GLOW events. Uh, we did one major GLOW event. We may well do others. We were signaling between Hillforts and Hillforts here and across to Cheshire. We did one major one uh, about 18 months ago with 10 hill forts included. We're not sure whether we will do another one yet or not. It, it was it, Getting people up on these sites in the dark safely and down safely is quite a challenge, but it was a great success and a great feeling of connection between the sites. Can you actually run us through a little bit of how these GLOW experiments went and what you were trying to learn through them? Something that we wanted to do, um, which we've done for the whole of the project, is reconnect people with their local hill forts. Essentially, these could be places where their actual ancestors lived, potentially. Um, and we wanted people to be more aware of them and, and you know, take, take care of them too. Uh, but something else that we were really interested in is um, the amount of hill forts that were around. We don't know if they were connected in some way. We don't know the dates. But say potentially they are all of a similar period, or some of them are at least, because there's so many, they must have had some overlap, whether they would have been aware of each other. A recent study a few years ago now, um, an MA, was into intervisibility, which was basically seeing if other hill forts can see how many other hill forts and, and things like that, really. So what we decided to do is ask people to come up with us to the top of 10 different hill forts in England and Wales and try and signal using light to each other um, to see if, as we say, we could see each other. We decided to do it at night because obviously today we've got, or, or at dusk I should say, today we've got a lot of light pollution, but they would have stood out a lot more with these massive banks and ditches and possibly a palisade fence on top, which is now er eroded away. And also we've now got tree cover, which from Pete's core analysis uh, that we've done in the area, we could suggest that actually the tops of the hills were probably used for growing crops and, and the tree cover was, was less on top of these hills, kind of more in the little valleys. Um, so we decided to do it at dusk to see if we could try and get as essentially as, as much as we can um, a, a better sight of, of these these hill forts. So yes, with a, f a few different people on each site, in, in some cases about 30, uh, considering this is going up at night in, at dusk um, on little paths. Um, other hill forts that are a bit more accessible, we were able to 
Well, there was nothing. We, where, from where we're sitting, we can see one of the hill forts that took part, and there were about a hundred people out there. But it is very accessible. Very, but it, yes, it was an amazing experience with all all of these people gathered around, all with our torches, basically then just flicking on and off our torches to be able to signal to other hill forts. And as we say, Penaclodia and Moilasa, less than two miles between them, they could pretty much actually wave at each other and be able to see with binoculars. But then other hill forts that were up to, I think 30 kilometers was the, the furthest we got. We were actually able to connect by light um, during this experiment. And that tells us that, let's say that there were, there were houses on top of these hill forts, there were hearths, that means there was smoke uh, coming up. They would have been able to see each other and they would have been aware of each other. Does that mean they were friends or foe? Does that mean that they were used for the same reason? Not necessarily, but it certainly makes us know that they would have been connected in some way. And as Fiona said earlier, the 300 people, the volunteers that we got out on that evening, that's the one thing that we got from the feedback, is that they felt that they were all connected and part of one larger community between the, the North East Wales and the Cheshire Hillforts. And that's something we really took away as a, a huge mm. kind of influence on the whole evening, really. And having partaken ourselves, that was the feeling mm. we had. Never forget it. Very exciting when you saw the next Hillfort signalling. That sounds great. I'm sure that there are plenty of people who would like to visit the Hillforts. I occasionally go home and, and visit family, and I've never been to these Hillforts, so I'd like to go as well. Uh, so how best should they go about doing that? Because obviously you don't want to cause any damage, but it would be nice to be able to go and visit and see. And, you know, uh, it would also be nice to be able to know what you're looking at. So how best can people get involved? What I'd say first of all is that some of the work we've been doing through the project is actually um, looking at access to these hill forts because we do want to encourage people to go and visit them. But obviously, as you say, erosion is an issue. So on some of them, if you do visit, you'll find these footpaths that are essentially floating on top of the archaeology. They've been built into the contours of the hill by using proper traditional techniques so they're protecting the archaeology underneath. So we would encourage people to, where there are public footpaths and open access land, to go and visit the hill forts. Um, and we've done our, our best to kind mm. of control the erosion. Mm. So that don't worry too much about that as long as you've got your OS map and you're prepared for weather changes and things like that. Um, but on the website, I'd say that we've, we've done an awful lot of, of leaflets and different walking guides. Um, and the area that we're working with is actually a designated area of outstanding natural beauty. Um, so within that website, which is, um, okay, we'll write this down, but the Cluidian Range and D Valley AONB, um, .org.uk. Within there, there are different pages about the hill forts, the sites, and different um, walking guides and places where tell you to park and where there's toilets and buses and things like that. So, yeah, the things you need to know if you're going out in the countryside. So I definitely recommend going onto that website. And that's where we've put all of the research reports from where we've done the surveys and the excavations on the hill forts as well. There's a wealth of information on that website there. And for anyone who's interested, I'm going to have links to all of this on the website, uh, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. So all you have to do is go there and all the links will be ready for you uh, right under this particular post. So one of the other things that I've been thinking about while you've been talking about this is how many digs that you want to do but haven't been able to do. How can people help support these digs and help get them going? That's quite difficult. The excavations that we've got... There's two universities, are ex three will be soon, two um, at the moment, um, and all of them 
uh, either using students or volunteers can get involved. So there's a there's involvement certainly through the universities that are doing the work, and we can put people in touch with them. So there are opportunities to get involved, um, and whenever there's work like that that's going on, guided walks are arranged so that people can go and see what is going on. So that, again, the best place might be the website, the Heaven Hope Walks website, Caribbean Range and Dee Valley website to get information on things like that. Mm. And if they get in touch with, with us, for example, yeah. um, we're able to contact the universities and, and basically usually through funding, they have a remit to, to take on local communities. Mm. That's what it's all about at the end of the day, um, reconnecting people with their heritage. Mm. Um, so obviously they're not huge digs, unfortunately, they're just research digs, but there are always a couple of places kept aside for, for local or interested parties who want to come in and find out a bit more. So which universities are going to be involved in these digs? Um, following on from the Moilagash Ambeda excavation, which was in 2009, Bangor University have started a research project in the area and currently looking at Kaidroin and its environs, um, and that's uh, mostly uh, headed up by Professor Ray Carl. Um, we've also got uh, links with Oxford University, who are currently at Moilagaya Bodfari, which is one of the hill forts that's sitting north of our project area, but on the Cluridian range. And uh, quite soon, we're also working with Liverpool University, and that's uh, Dr. Rachel Pope, um, who will be coming uh, for a training dig on, on Penaclasii mm. later in the year. Well, the last question I have for you, because I actually have a number of younger listeners who might be interested in becoming an archaeologist. I'm kind of interested in becoming an archaeologist now. So what sort of advice do you have for kids who want to get involved in archaeology and have a developing interest in this sort of thing? Certainly in Britain, there is um, a, a, a national thing called the Young Archaeologists Club, and there are local branches, uh, and youngsters can get involved with those local branches. I run a local branch here in Denbyshire, northeast Wales, and we meet about once a month, try and do a variety of different things. So, for example, um, next Saturday, we're visiting um, an, a medieval, but an, an excavation, and they'll get a chance to have a go. We try and visit um, monument sites, do some practical work. So there, there are young archaeologist clubs all over the UK, and that's quite a good way for youngsters to get involved because it gives you a taste of what archaeology is about um, and the practical side of it as well, and just exploring your local area and finding out whether you are really interested, I guess, because um, that's always quite difficult. You, you, you might have an interest, but when the practical archaeology could be a bit different. When you get to about 16, 17, there are training excavations run again across the United Kingdom. Generally, you have to pay for that, whereas the Young Archaeologist Club um, generally is free. But there are opportunities to learn the techniques of excavation and to, to be taught all of that uh, in different parts of the country. So there are quite a few opportunities to just find out whether it's really what you like. Mm -hmm. I'd also say that um, joining something like the Young Archaeologist Club gives you a taste of all the different things that or aspects of archaeology. Um, you don't necessarily have to be somebody who excavates or oh, digs no, no. to be no. an archaeologist. As you've heard, we, mm. we generally have hired in contractors mm. as archaeologists to come in and do work for us. Uh, my role is, um, I, I 
my hat is an archaeologist, but I, I generally share information and get people enthused. That's my job within archaeology. So I say that, you know, there's always different tasters mm. to do. There's, um, you can volunteer at your local HCR, which is the Historic Environment Record, and help do kind of archival work, look at aerial photographs. So there's lots and lots of different things to do. And a club like the Young Archaeologist Club does actually kind of show you lots of different techniques for actually get, getting into the heritage sector as a whole, really. It's a good introduction. Well, thank you very much. Again, we've been speaking with Erin uh, Robinson and Fiona Gale, who have been working on the Heather and Hillfort site. Uh, you can see their work at www.heatherandhillforts.co.uk. And they also have a Twitter feed that you can follow. It's at twitter.com slash heatherhillfort. And of course, all the stuff that we've been talking about and all the links to the various uh, sites will be on my website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And once again, thank you very much, Erin and Fiona, for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Thank you. Okay. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also head over to the website and make a comment or join the forums. That's at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Or you can join the community over at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're also on Twitter. And I'm getting a little bit better with Twitter. I'm retweeting interesting historical tidbits and that sort of thing. So if you're into Twitter, just add at British Podcast. All right. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, we didn't get the word whatnot in either.